Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. This week on the California Report magazine, what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas. For many Californians, their playground across the border has been forever changed after this week's mass shooting. And yet, for many casinos and tourist attractions there, it hasn't. It seems to me uh, business as usual in a way that I personally wouldn't have expected. We look at science that shows how tragedies like these don't just last a lifetime. They can linger through generations. And it was like this really depressing moment of realizing that I'm just like my mother. And we talked to the children of refugees who fled the Vietnam War to understand how we inherit our parents' pain. I'm April Dimbosky, sitting in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Susan Smith of Simi Valley. Chris Roybal, Corona. Lisa Patterson, Lomita. Jennifer Parks, Lancaster. More than half the victims of this week's mass shooting were from California. Many Southern Californians especially have a deep connection to Las Vegas. They work there, they play there. But in the heart of the Strip, there's not a lot of obvious acknowledgement of what happened. At night, the casino and hotel marquees still blaze with intensity. The California Report's Stephen Cuevas is there, and he tells us what's changed since Sunday and what hasn't. You can hear people's screams of delight as they plunge down the steep drops of the New York, New York roller coaster that towers over the Las Vegas Strip. It roars over the faux skyline of the casino hotel every five minutes. You know, what I've been seeing is just the sort of churn of a business town. Along the Strip, I get to talking to Brian Dawson, a young documentary filmmaker from San Francisco. He's a fellow at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. He headed to Vegas right after the shooting. He happens to be working on a film about gun violence. It seems to me uh, business as usual in a way that I personally wouldn't have expected. I I would have thought that we'd see more businesses close. Um, This morning I I called a shooting range. I think you can pay about 60 bucks a pop and uh, shoot off a machine gun. Um, They're open today. But obviously something is different. I head down the strip another block toward the site of Sunday's massacre. I'm a little bit below the Mandalay Bay Hotel, where the shooter was. And actually, from where I'm standing, I can see the windows that that he broke out 
on two sides of the 32nd floor and shot down across the strip here and into the concert area, which is directly across the street. Uh, and as I'm standing here, there's people walking by. They're looking at their cell phones. Some are taking pictures. No one's saying anything. Just, it's somber. You can feel it. Yeah, you know, it's a just... definitely a different feel. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just quieter. It's just people are, like, just kind of taking it all in right now, you know? I stop and chat with Mindy Whelan and her daughter, Jennifer. They've lived in Las Vegas for several years. Natives of California, the town of Upland, not too far from San Bernardino. They're sitting on the sidewalk outside the Mandalay on a little patch of grass, looking across the strip, over at the fenced-off outdoor venue where the shooter opened fire. I don't know what they're going to do with this. I can't see them holding another anything anything there. there. That is just a place you don't even want to step on, you know? You don't want to go near that. I would think they would build a memorial or some sort. That's what I'm thinking. That's going to be a memorial forever. No thoughts of uh, going back to a little upland? No, (laughs) I would never. This is home forever. Yeah, this is where I'm planting my roots. Vegas beckons a lot of people from California. It's only a short flight or a few hours drive from parts of Southern California. Housing can be a lot cheaper, too. And the economy is humming. Unemployment is just 5%. And what's your name, sir? My name is Victor Ortegazzo. And again, what brings you to Vegas? Gotta find work. Victor Ortegazzo headed here from Ontario, California, a week before Sunday's attack. He stayed away from the site until today, even though he lives nearby with a brother. He could hear the music all that weekend. Then he heard what stopped the music. Bang, 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 over and over again. Bang, 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 bang. That's out of my fire. And what did you do? There's nothing I could do. I thought it was firecrackers. Turned out, oh my God, another one of those attacks. God darn it. I run into some other recent Vegas transplants, also hard up for work. They're dressed up in big, colorful Alvin and the Chipmunks costumes. They pose for photos with tourists, hitting them up for a couple bucks. The guy dressed as Alvin, he's from Arizona, but he wants to use his nickname, Snoopy. Uh, Up until mid-June, I didn't have a job. I was homeless on the streets. I mean, until a friend hooked me up with with this jit. With Alvin. Yeah, well, I (laughs) I was goofy at the time when I started, so Disney. Uh, and he said business is not great. What that one idiot did can't be put on to everybody else. Some people right. are just out here to support a family like I am. I've, I've got a one-month child. That I, This is how I feed every day. If the shooting hadn't happened, I'd have a, a decent paycheck this week and I wouldn't have to worry. But one of them said, I think it was uh, Theodore, <laughs> the guy playing Theodore, said, hey, you know, if we can just make a few people laugh and, and maybe they give us a few bucks, maybe they don't, it's okay. But we're trying in our own way to, to help people here. That's the thing. We got, we're trying to cheer them up. All right, and a lot of people just, they need to talk to somebody about this. Right, you get it out in the open, you'll, you'll start feeling better. Yeah. Well, that's the hotel. I don't know. Oh. People are talking, and you can pick up on conversations almost everywhere you go in Vegas. And yet the city has this other side that pulses along the strip, a kind of ruthless energy that seems to have little time for prolonged reflection. Sunday's mass killing revealed the often two competing populations of Las Vegas. The full-time residents, many of whom are in the midst of some profound grief and soul-searching, 
and the enormous transient population of tourists, pleasure seekers, and gamblers. Transient as they may seem, many of them are sharing in the sorrow as well. And far too many will leave this place with it. For the California Report, I'm Stephen Cuevas in Las Vegas. The grief and fear that many people carry with them after a tragedy like this can cast a long shadow, even through generations. Studies from the Vietnam War show how children can inherit the suffering their parents experienced. This is the east coast of Malaysia. Final destination, thousands of refugees fleeing Vietnam. Many don't make it this far. For Mai Lin Lee, it was just when she was about to leave that she saw her parents' past in a new way. She was getting ready to fly to Europe when she thought of her mom. Lee is 30, about the same age her mom was when she got on a boat to leave Vietnam. There was no food, no water, and people were just dying left and right, and every time somebody died, they would just throw them overboard. Lee wasn't born yet. Her mom was divorced and had two young daughters at the time, but only one of them got on the boat with her. The older one was just kicking and screaming, and it was sort of a, a risky thing because she's sneaking off into a boat. When she told me the story, this was the one time she cried, was when she said, so I decided to just leave her behind. Stories like these trickled out during Lee's childhood in San Jose. It was always hush-hush, so Lee doesn't remember that much. What she remembers about her parents was how angry they were. The amount of rage they had inside of them was scary. Lee remembers this one day when she was six. She was in first grade, and she forgot her backpack at home. And no one could understand why I was so worried about that. But when I got home, my mom found out, and she just lost her mind. Lee had this plastic Fisher-Price table. It was yellow and blue. She just, like, kicked that thing across the room. It hit the wall so hard, it terrified me. Lee says it was like this all the time. She forgot her books when they went to the library, and her mom started screaming. When her sister messed up a sauce for dinner, her dad threw a dish at the wall. Sometimes I just didn't even know what I was dealing with. She came to dread every day, and it also took her hours to fall asleep. Having that kind of anxiety about, like, what mistakes I might make the next day, you know, it would keep me up at night. I, I think that's where my anxieties over, like, making mistakes started. As a kid, Lee figured her family was just like all the other Vietnamese families in the community. Everybody's parents wanted their kids to be serious about school and remember their backpack, right? The belief is a cultural piece, but the reaction is influenced by trauma. Clayton Chow is a psychiatrist based in Southern California. A parent without trauma would sit the child down and say, hey, uh, what happened? Uh, how can we ensure that you have your backpack and the importance of having your backpack? Versus if she was traumatized, then immediately she would just explode with no control. Chow says he sees this with a lot of Vietnamese families who suffered terrible losses during or after the war. If parents don't resolve the trauma they experienced, their kids can inherit it. It's partly genetic. Trauma can alter genes, which get passed down to the next generation. And it's partly behavior, usually unconscious. Children grow up in that environment, uh, develop a lot of anxiety, and, and very unsure of themselves. Because parents who are supposed to love you react that way. How can you have any prediction for strangers? 
The phenomenon is called the intergenerational transfer of trauma. It was first recognized in the 1960s in the children of Holocaust survivors. It's since been identified in lots of groups, including kids of Cambodian and Vietnamese refugees. But while the Jewish mode of managing trauma is commemoration, remembering, in some Buddhist cultures, people cope by letting go of things that can't be changed or focusing on the future. For Mylan Lee's family, the kids were the future. At that time, when I'm in high school, my parents sort of decided for me that I was going to be a pharmacist. Like, I was given no no say in this. As Lee got older, her parents got more controlling. Because they had lost so much, they were obsessed with her safety. Lee says they would listen in on all her phone conversations and wouldn't let her walk anywhere. She never learned how to ride the bus because her parents insisted on hiring drivers to take her to school. Even my friends and my friends' parents felt bad for me. They would actually lie to my parents for me sometimes so that I could go to the movies or something, you know. Lee got really good at suppressing her own anger and frustration so she wouldn't set her parents off. But now, as an adult, she started to notice little ways that this family habit is catching up with her. She was on the phone with her boyfriend recently. And uh, he didn't do something that I thought he should have done, like, by a certain time. And this rage just, like, suddenly came out of nowhere, just, like, totally bubbled up within me. She says she wanted to throw the phone across the room. And it was, like, this really depressing moment of realizing that I'm just like my mother. Lee decided she wanted to interview her mom and dad, ask them about the things that happened to them that she was always told not to talk about. It was a way of figuring out who she was and where these different parts of herself came from. Her dad told her about his first wife and their two sons. He was a helicopter pilot in the South Vietnamese Air Force and spent three years in a concentration camp after the war. He later made it to the U.S., but when he sent for his family, their boat sank, and his wife and older son drowned. He abruptly stopped talking and then just started wailing. Lee had never had such a clear picture of how much suffering her family has had to bear. She'd never seen her dad in this state. It was weird for me to be there for him because... We just never have had that kind of relationship where we were there for one another. It was a first step, an important one, says psychiatrist Clayton Chow. But Lee knows it's a long road to true reconciliation. She feels like her parents' past is on her now. She says she needs to work through it all, for herself and for them. Sometimes a whole community has to face the trauma handed down through generations— About 20 years ago, eight Hmong teenagers in Fresno committed suicide. Their parents were refugees from Laos, and they knew the teen deaths were connected to their past. The California Report's Central Valley reporter Vanessa Rancaño looks at how second-generation Hmong are reclaiming their parents' history. Come on in, come on in. All right, guys, so meeting's going to start right now. So on our agenda today... At 15, Sarah Vang is a confident leader. She runs her high school Hmong club meeting with ease. With her big, persistent smile, she spreads enthusiasm even to the most reluctant participants. We want helpers for club day. Put your hands up. Hands up, hands up. You guys get out of class early. (laughs) She founded the club last year as a sophomore. 
she takes it upon herself to look out for new Hmong students. This year when I saw there were a lot of Hmong freshmen and I just wanted to like tell them like, oh my gosh, like join the Hmong club. Like I'm so happy you're Hmong and I feel like I'm like the mother of all Hmong people. Like I just, I, I love my community so much. But that love only came after years of wrestling with her identity. Sarah didn't speak much Hmong growing up, and she didn't really talk with her parents about their life in Laos and why they came here. And in elementary school, kids tormented her with racist taunts. It made me want to, I guess, kind of diminish all like Asian or Hmong aspect of me. I did not want to associate myself with any Hmong people. I, I really hated Hmong people. She felt that way for years. Then, eventually, as a teen, she started wanting to know more about her culture. Around the same time, her high school introduced its first Hmong language and history class. Every high school in Fresno Unified School District now offers these classes. Sarah enrolled. One day, her teacher showed the class a documentary about the Hmong in Fresno. It mentioned the eight teenagers who killed themselves between 1998 and 2001. Once I saw my brother's face, I just, like, I started crying. Sarah's brother was one of those teenagers. He died before she was born. My teacher didn't know that that was my brother, and she didn't know that the person who they were interviewing was my dad. Me, I cannot save my son anymore because he, he's gone. But I want to make sure that all the parents save the kid. This is Sarah's dad. Peter Vang. After his son's death, Vang talked to the families and friends of the other teens who killed themselves. The kids all had distinct troubles, but Vang found a common theme. This kid didn't have an identity. They don't know who they are, where they came from, why they're paying for with the war. Vang says for kids to have a better sense of their identity, to know who they are, they need to know more about where they come from. They need to learn about that war, the so-called secret war. The CIA recruited Hmong fighters to help stop the spread of communism in Laos during the Vietnam conflict. At least 30,000 of them died. After the war, many Hmong ended up in the Central Valley, home to the second largest Hmong community in the United States. Vang says when his son was in school, this story wasn't told. There's nothing in history book, and so school when they talk about Vietnam War, Hmong not existing. So Vang and others in the community successfully advocated for California legislation that encouraged schools to teach students about the role of the Hmong in the Vietnam War. And they began pushing for Hmong language and history classes at Fresno schools. Like the one Vang's daughter, Sarah, took for the first time last year. In that class, the secret war got a lot of attention. At first, we're like, okay, why are we learning about this? Like, we don't really understand. And... But once we really got into depth about it, we understood that Hmong people, they went through a lot of hardships trying to get here. So that's, that's when I started to ask my dad, okay, so tell me a little about the war. You know, bomb, rocket, and machine gun everywhere, body part everywhere. Uh, sound like, Ew! then you ran, and our house got burned. And I thought my parents were all dead. And I, I realized it's still alive after all this smoke. It really hit home. It made me appreciate everything the elders did. Because of them, we are here. 
Okay. Well, oh. This year, Sarah's school offered a more advanced Hmong class for the first time. After more than a decade, the work of Peter Vang and other community members is paying off. Last year, Fresno State introduced a minor in Hmong. So that's saying, Tia Togepa? Oh, okay. Fresno Unified has something else in the works, too. It's testing out a dual immersion class for kindergartners so the kids like six-year-old Logan can learn to read Hmong. I know how to read English, but not Hmong. It's so hard. But for now, these kids have mastered Happy Birthday. The Hmong who fled their homeland since the Vietnam War hope this generation and those to come will walk through the world with confidence, knowing their language and history, knowing exactly where they come from so they can decide who they want to be. For The California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Fresno. Arnulfo Garcia became a different man in prison. It was only on the inside that he was able to deal with the unresolved pain behind his crimes. He became a reformer and an editor. He ran the San Quentin News, a paper written and edited by inmates. We aspire to remove the curtain of secrecy that so often shrouds in darkness, not only at San Quentin, but also in throughout the nation's criminal justice system. Authorities noticed Garcia's transformation, and at 65 years old, he was released. But two months later, he was killed in a car crash. Reporter Joanne Jennings has this story about how Garcia's accomplishments reached far beyond the prison newsroom. To get to the San Quentin newsroom, I have to enter through a security gate, then pass through a yard where inmates are working out in the warm midday sun. I know you need my letter, right? I need your letter and any photos. You're going to pick the front page photo. Oh, the front page photo? Oh, uh, yeah. My name is Richard Alexander Richardson, but I'm better known as Bonnaroo. With photos of Garcia taped all around his computer, Bonnaroo is pounding away at his keyboard. I'm working on our new full story right now. And at first I couldn't, I couldn't even get the first sentence out, you know. He had this or about himself that I have never seen in any other person I've ever met, ever. Garcia transformed the newspaper from a ragtag publication to one that's in 69 prisons across the country. He changed the tone of the paper to cover stories like a prison hunger strike and overcrowding, all without cell phones or access to the Internet. But most importantly for Bonnaroo, Garcia was his mentor. I carry your soul with me. And wherever I go, his soul will go with me. Garcia, a three-striker, was serving a life sentence for residential burglary, possession of heroin, and a firearm. But he spent his time in prison reforming himself, using journalism as his vehicle. His Arnufo was like this big dreamer. Garcia's close friend Ali Tambora was paroled a year ago. He now works as a software engineer. He says Garcia had a way of making the impossible possible. All, it was all the time you'd say like, you know, Ali, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, and I'd be like, dude, we're not, we can't do it, we can't do that. They're not going to allow us to do that. And two, three weeks, sometimes maybe two months, 
exactly what you know he said would come to fruition. Like holding forums inside San Quentin that brought together inmates, judges, and prosecutors like Santa Clara District Attorney Jeff Rosen. The visits that I've had with Arnolfo and other inmates at San Quentin have opened my eyes to the fact that there are inmates in prison who have changed, who are changing, uh, who can change, and that if given the right circumstances, more inmates can change. Rosen did something that's really rare for a district attorney. He worked to get Garcia out of prison. As big a contribution as he made in prison to other inmates and to people beyond the prison, he was on the cusp of making even more significant contributions. Like building a halfway house in rural northern California, Garcia wanted to bring some of the programs that helped him at San Quentin to parolees from all over the state. Programs like GRIP. Yeah, so uh, the GRIP program was stands for Guiding Rage into Power. Fatim Jackson is still an inmate at San Quentin. He went through GRIP with Garcia in 2012. The entire program is about how can we find ways to cope with you know, unresolved hurt, unresolved pain in ways where it won't turn into unhealthy anger and ultimately, you know, destructive violence. A few days after Garcia died, about 20 inmates, many of them lifers, gather in a circle to remember their friend. Our new father, I just thank you for always being consistent in the way that you treated me, being a man of character, integrity, having a servant's heart. Thank you for being genuine. Just being a good person. I pray your spirit continue to live on. Each inmate takes a turn caressing a small river rock that had belonged to Garcia. One after another, they speak to their departed friend, his photo sitting in an empty chair in the circle. I just want you to know that each day that we move forward, we will carry on your legacy in the proper way and do everything we can to change the social construct of the prison in your name. Thank you, Arnufo. Gracias. Arnufo Garcia's family and friends have pledged to continue his work on the halfway house, a place where formerly incarcerated men can process their anger, come to peace with the harm they caused, and prepare for life on the outside. For The California Report, I'm Joanne Jennings. And that's The California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can listen to us wherever you are. Subscribe to our podcast. And let us know what you think about the show on Facebook or drop us a note to calreport at kqed.org. We were directed this week by Ryan Levy, and we have production help from Nina Thorson. Our senior editor is Victoria Malione. The technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Howard Gelman and Jim Bennett. We had online production help from Burt Johnson and Kelly O'Mara. Our intern is Bianca Taylor. The California Report's editorial team includes Julia McAvoy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm April Dimbosky. Thanks for listening.
This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloud-ready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.